Let's pray. Shepherd of souls, you call us to an abundant feast at the table of your word. Open our hearts to feed on your goodness, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we might dwell evermore deeply in you. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 36 through 42. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. Her life overflowed with good works and compassionate acts on behalf of those in need. About that time, though, she became so ill that she died. After they washed her body, they laid her in an upstairs room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, when the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two people to Peter. They urged, please come right away. Peter went with them. Upon his arrival, he was taken to the upstairs room. All the, window, all the widows stood beside him, crying as they showed the tunics and other clothing Dorcas had made when she was alive. Peter sent everyone out of the room, then knelt and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then he called God's holy people, including the widows, and presented her alive to them. The news spread throughout Joppa, and many put their faith in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with a certain tanner named Simon. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 23. This is familiar, so just close your eyes and breathe and listen. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He lets me rest in grassy meadows. He leads me to restful waters. He keeps me alive. He guides me in proper paths for the sake of his good name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me, your rod and your staff. They protect me. You set a table for me right in front of my enemies. You bathe my head in oil. My cup is so full, it spills over. Yes, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the Lord's house as long as I live. Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. This is John speaking. After this I looked, and there was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, Victory belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four 
creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and always. Amen. Then one of the elders said to me, Who are these people wearing white robes, and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he said to me, These people have come out of a great hardship. They have washed their robes and made them white in the Lamb's blood. This is the reason they are before God's throne. They worship him day and night in his temple, and the one seated on the throne will shelter them. They won't hunger or thirst anymore. No sun or scorching heat will beat down on them, because the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. He will lead them to the springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Did you get all that? Can I just sit down? You fully comprehended it? Have you ever had a fever dream? Have you ever had a crazy dream when you're sick that you wake up and go, what was that all about? I haven't had a fever dream, but I was born with um, malformed intestines. I had surgery at eight days old, and I've had surgery several times throughout my life. The last time I was 21, and what happens to me when I'm on morphine after surgery is I have crazy dreams. They are vivid, and they are crazy. I still remember them, and I don't remember my dreams normally. When I read the book of Revelation, which I have to admit, I haven't done much of. I have two degrees in biblical studies and theology, and when I cracked open my one commentary on Revelation, the binding still cracked because it really hadn't been opened. So I ordered a few more to read. But Revelation to me is a lot like a morphine dream. You read it and you go, what was that all about? So I haven't spent much time with it. You see, Revelation is in this small group of biblical literature called Jewish apocalyptic literature. And the book of Revelation is even, even in a subset of that called prophetic Jewish apocalyptic literature. If you Google that or Amazon search that, you're not going to get many books that pop up into the results. Not many people write on that. But it's challenging because it is all symbolism. This book is symbolism, and apocalyptic literature was written in times of persecution and oppression. So the book of Daniel is apocalyptic literature, written while the people were in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel has Jewish apocalyptic literature in it. The famous passage about the valley of dry bones, and, and you saw the bones coming up, and they grew, grew flesh on them, and it was the people of Israel. All of these were written under intense persecution and suffering. For the book of Revelation, one of the last books of the Bible written, the early Christians were under intense persecution in Rome. 
There's debate in dating this as to before or after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. I tend to think before because of the themes in it. But the early Christians were under intense persecution. This is the time that the Christians were famously in the games and fed to lions for people's pleasure as they watched. They needed hope. And as crazy as it seems, apocalyptic literature is filled with hope. Hope that God will make what is wrong in the world right once and for all. So when the people are at their lowest and under the most intense of pressures, it's a reminder of who they are, who God is, and what the final outcome will be. Now, one of my problems with Revelation is, is that I think it's one of the most misused books in the Bible. Does anyone remember the Left Behind series in the 90s? Did anyone read those books? Don't be ashamed if you read any of them. I think I read through the first one to two of them because they were very popular and I was curious and I tried to read them. I didn't make it very far. But those books are a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. They're very specific, and it's a very literal interpretation. And people really read that and bought that up, and, and it created all of this fervor about the end times. And they're coming, and the end times are here, and Jesus is coming back, and be ready for the rapture, and one day you'll wake up and the Christians are all gone. And unfortunately, often that interpretation of Revelation is used to strike fear into people. It's that question, you probably saw bumper stickers. You know, if Jesus comes back today, what will happen to you? Or in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. That was one of my favorites. Too often, the Bible is used as a tool for fear and control, and Revelation is an example of that. And I've been neglectful of it because of that. But this text is full of imagery and symbolism that meant something to the churches it was written to. Seven churches that this was sent around to, around the Roman world. And a lot is happening in this text. John is having visions. Visions of the kingdom of God, visions of heaven, vision of the heavenly realms, vision of God seated on the throne, visions of the Lamb, or Jesus. And we get too stuck on trying to decipher the symbol. I'm not convinced that the book of Revelation even speaks to us as modern readers. We are not the people it was written to. We are not undergoing the persecution they were. And I think one thing that happens when we try to interpret it in our context is that we see ourselves under persecution that isn't there. We in this country experience tremendous religious freedom. 
That's not true of everywhere. But when we look at this text, this great crowd that John sees gathered, there are a few important things we can take from it without trying to decipher everything that's going on. What we're seeing here is a callback to the first few chapters of Genesis, the promise to Abraham. You'll feel remember, Abraham went out at night, God called him out of his tent, he went out and God said, look up at the sky. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky or grains of sand on a beach. You won't even be able to count them, there will be so many. This was said to someone without children who was late in life. This vision is the final fulfillment of that. John sees a great multitude gathered around the throne that you could not even count. The promise finally fulfilled. But it's not just one people group. For years and years and years, Jewish writers, when they interpreted that text, always tied it to the people of Israel. God's chosen people are the ones who are part of that promise. It's one of the reasons that Jesus' ministry and his message didn't meet what they expected. Because Jesus clearly took his message to the Gentiles as well. To those deemed less than by the Jewish people, the Samaritans, those who were unclean and unworthy. We humans tend to take the promises of God and narrow them to something that includes us and excludes others. This passage challenges that. Because what John sees is not solely the people of God, the nation of Israel standing before the throne, the ancestors and the patriarchs and those who came before him. But he sees a multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. They're all gathered together on equal footing, all as children of God, all before God. God's message and God's promises were never just for one people group. They were just interpreted that way. They were always for all people. All people were included. All people were created in the image of God. All people will stand before God together, unified, but not in uniformity. We maintain our differences in this text. We maintain the things that make us unique. We maintain who we are. We're not wiped clean of what makes us different but it's celebrated as the diversity of God's people before the throne. And all are together worshiping. The 
The second part of this text talks about great hardship or tribulation as it's often translated. The time between Jesus' ascension and this vision on earth when it comes is a time of hardship for those seeking to follow Jesus. There's never a golden time where it's great to follow Jesus. There's not a golden period. There aren't the good old days. If we're doing it right, it's hard. It challenges us. And it challenges our culture. It challenges power. Just as Jesus did. But throughout the hardship, what we are to lean on is our faith. Our faith in Jesus and who he is and what he accomplished on the cross is to be our sole comfort through hardship. The only place we look for hope. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be how we often respond to hardship. You know, if it's a test, and I don't think God tests us randomly, but let's pretend it's a test for a second. How do we respond when things get hard? I'm grateful for grace and forgiveness because I don't think we do well when that happens. You know, one of the troubling things as I talk to other pastors and other churches and watch kind of trends in the church is when things get hard, we revert to fear as people. That fear just really comes back in and takes over. And when we're fearful, what we're open to is the promises of false gods to protect us, to keep us safe. That's what happens in election cycles. If you pay attention to the messaging in election cycles, it's a couple of things, and this doesn't really matter who's talking. So you're going to have to lay aside your personal biases for a moment. But number one, there are things to fear. There are people to fear. I can keep you safe. That's how people get elected. We fall for it every time. It's like, ugh. They create hardships, false persecution. They paint us as the victims. And we believe them. What we know from our Christian faith is the ends never justify the means. It's the means that matter. It's how we live our lives. It's how we do things. It's how we move in this world that speaks to where our hope is. We can't say that as long as we get the outcome we want, it doesn't really matter how we do it. That's a, that's a worldly idea. That's not a Christian idea. So you can't Set aside your faith. You can't set aside the teachings of Jesus in order to get the outcomes you want. 
That's what Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation is all about the fact that when persecution comes, when oppression is there, when your faith is all you have, that is what you must rely on. You must resist the urge to fight back. You must resist the urge to take up arms. And yet we have failed at that over and over. The Crusades are a good example of a failing of that. A holy war is an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp. There are no holy wars. War is not an option for us. Revelation is a book about hope. But more importantly, where our hope is to lie. And each of us is faced with that choice at different times in our life. And sometimes we get it wrong. And we mess up. And thankfully, forgiveness is there. To start a new day and go, okay, well, yesterday I failed. I believed the lies. I didn't keep my faith in you. But a new day comes. So as people in the modern church seeking to understand how we fit in our world, we fit the way the church has always fit. To be beacons of God's word in a world that is corrupt and broken and in need of hope. But we can only do that by showing people a different way. We cannot scare people into heaven. Sorry, Left Behind series, but it doesn't work. To the billboards that I drive by that say, if you die today, where will you go? Well, I don't know. Apparently they do. We can love people into heaven. We can love people into the hope of Jesus Christ. We can love people into radical transformation of their lives. And that is what we are to do. The commandments are whittled down to two, and both are based on love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. End of sentence. So take heart in that. Remain hopeful. Keep your faith in God alone and in the hope of Jesus Christ through whatever this life offers and be a beacon of that hope shining bright in the darkest of places. That is our role in this world. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Community Presbyterian Church in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. 